When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Meritocracy is the creed of our age, an idea that has had great success in crossing traditional boundaries. Not just Thatcher, Reagan and Boris Johnson, but Clinton, Blair and Xi Jinping have all sung the praises of a society where anyone can get ahead based on their own talent and effort. But just as meritocracy has risen to be the dominant idea of our age, it's faced an onslaught of criticism from the traditional left who see it as a betrayal of principles of equality and solidarity to contemporary social justice activists who regard it as just another instrument of white power. But perhaps most interesting are the trenchant critiques from some of those at the heart of the meritocratic system, like the Yale law professor who calls meritocracy a sham, an excuse for the wealthy to game the system and pass on their privilege to the younger generation. These are some of the questions that preoccupy Adrian Wooldridge, the political editor of The Economist, in his latest book, The Aristocracy of Talent. In part, it's a history of the meritocratic idea from Plato to the present day, but it's also a lament for the way supposedly meritocratic societies have been corrupted by old-fashioned cronyism and how we can go about correcting that. Last week, we were delighted to host a live Zoom event with Adrian to discuss the book and field a few tricky questions from CapEx readers. I began by asking Adrian a simple question. What does a country need to be considered a meritocracy? What meritocracy means, essentially, is the idea that people should be judged on the basis of their individual talents and abilities, not on the basis of their family connections, their inherited position in society. That's the fundamental meaning. But I think meritocracy also means something a bit more than that, or it does now. And that is it means um, some approximation of equality of opportunity. That in order to have a meritocratic society, you must make sure that everybody has a chance to compete and has a chance to get a, a basic education. So if we had a system in which you had perfect competition for all jobs, but um, the rich went to Eden and the poor got sent up chimneys at the age of nine, that wouldn't really be a meritocracy. So you must have, have some, some notion of a welfare state. And you might say, who on earth could be against that? It sounds like you know the very definition of decency and common sense. But in fact, for most of history, Society has been organised by very on the basis of very very different principles from individual ability. Yeah, and you, meant, you mentioned that this, um, I think, it's priority, degree, and place were very much the um, the overriding uh, ways that societies have organised themselves prior to meritocracy kind of taking their place. Do you see? Do you think that there is in in the West, let's say, in Europe, a 
a moment or a decade or a century where meritocracy starts to establish itself? Or is this a kind of gradual process over many, many centuries? Yes. I mean, before meritocracy, society was organized on the basis of inherited positions. Uh, the idea which you see uh, stated brilliantly in Shakespeare is that people should inherit their positions and that if they stop inheriting their positions and, and get their positions on the basis of effort or ambition, then everything will fall apart. That the, 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 the social order is a reflection of the divine order, and that is an order uh, which is predetermined and in which you inherit your positions. Also, the, the leading, the guiding institution in society is the family or the dynasty. So people take their place because of where they're born and who their parents are. Um, that's what we see at the moment with the monarchy, uh, which is a, a holdover from this feudal society. But before, before the modern period, this was a sort of a universal principle. Uh, so the, the idea of meritocracy, I think, is one of the great revolutionary ideas in, in human history. And what my book is, is really a history book, and it's, attempt to, and it's an attempt to chart how we got from the old society of priority degree in place to the new society of individual ability and merit. And we take this so much for granted that you know, people should get positions on the basis of merit that we forget that this was a great intellectual revolution, uh, a fundamental uh, intellectual revolution as fundamental as the rise of democracy or the rise of liberalism or the rise of capitalism. Um, and I think that um, this is an idea which is both a long history and a short history. It has a long history in the sense that Plato in the Republic uh, envisages a world based on merit, uh, in which you have three classes of people, the, 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 the gold, the silver, and the bronze. And the position is based not on inheritance, but on your abilities, on your, your capacity to be a wise philosopher and, uh, and a ruler. And Plato says that people may be born, um, gold people may be born in any class. That's a revolutionary idea. It says you have to look at the whole of society for these gold people. And they might be born in any gender. He says that women might be just as good at being guardians as men. So he has this extraordinary radical um, idea. Um, and of course, it's a book. It's, uh, it's a blueprint, but it's also something that has a lot of influence on people's, uh, people's behavior. So you constantly you know, get a rediscovery of Plato and an attempt to create a platonic um, opportunity-based society. You have it in the Renaissance. Um, you have it again in the 19th century. Um, the middle 19th century, when people are saying, let's, let's, let's create um, Plato's idea of philosopher kings. So that's one stream. A second stream is what you get really through the church and a little bit through the state, is that you must select a certain number of people who can do the jobs of the world, which is running the church or running the state or running big feudal landed estates. You need ability to be able to do that. So there's a sort of attempt to pick people out on the basis of their abilities. And you have schools like Winchester and Eton, which are you know, designed specifically to select bright, clever, you know, poor people and put them in the service of the legal system of the state and of the church. And of course, this is a time when the church is a celibate organization. So the church has to keep recruiting people in from outside um, to, to fill its ranks. And finally, over in the East, you have China, which is the first country to create a mass sort of um, meritocratic system. China, China is, uh, invents the idea of mass examinations and invents the idea that society should really be run by a Confucian elite. So whereas Plato has this as a theory, 
China is putting it into practice from the early Middle Ages onwards. So at the time when Britain is being run by people with names like Eric Bloodaxe, China is being run by Confucian Mandarin scholars who are chosen by their, their, their ability to, do, to, 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 to write elegant poems. And at its height, the Chinese examination system is testing about 10% of the population of China um, every year for potential Confucian scholars. So it's a massive, massive examination system. So those are the origins of, the long-term origins of this idea. This, in the shorter term, um, it's these three great revolutions which really create the modern meritocracy. Um, the American Revolution, uh, the French Revolution, um, and the English Gladstonian Liberal Revolution, all of which are designed to replace the old landed aristocracy with um, what the revolutionaries regarded as a true aristocracy of ability, virtue, and talents. Yeah, and you discussed as well there's some that the nature of the British aristocracy changed quite profoundly in the middle of the 19th century. They've become much more kind of public spirited and less uh, dilettantish and, and so on. Um, do you think that from reading the various societies that have embraced meritocracy, would you say that from a historical point of view, meritocracy is a sine qua non for success? Had, have you come across societies which, which were not meritocratic but were successful? nonetheless? That's a very penetrating question, if I may say, a very difficult question, because if you look at Britain before it had its meritocratic reforms in the 18th century, in some ways it was pretty successful. I mean, they, it created an empire, it created a very mighty naval force, one of the world's greatest uh, naval powers. Um, so, And you have a military in which you're buying commissions, and you have a, a naval system in which you're, you're, you're certainly not appointing people just on the basis of examinations. So you could have um, a, a successful society before meritocracy, but that was in a world where you had very limited information about people um, and a world in which you um, had very little, you know, very poor transport, very, very poor communication. So it was very difficult for the state to monitor its, its subject. So what you have, you know, it's very direct incentives in the army. You know, you, you you know your way to have make a fortune was to was to kill the enemy. Then you could keep the prize money um, of doing. It. So you might buy commissions, but you you also you know um, you bought the commissions because you thought you thought that you could get the plunder of war. The same with the, the the naval system. So there were very direct systems of incentives. But I think once you get a modern society, um, which has sophisticated uh, information and which governs fairly coherent bodies of uh, land, then meritocracy becomes a sine qua non. You do have to have it. So every country in the world has gone through a meritocratic transition. Uh, I, I pointed to the examples of, of, of France, Germany, and England, but you have that right across Europe. And what you tend to find is that the countries that have made the meritocratic transition most successfully are the ones that are most prosperous and successful. And those that don't make that transition are the ones that tend to be the laggards. And I would point um, particularly, I mean, I think very interestingly to the example of, of, of Italy, which has had economic stagnation now for the last 20 years. And one of the many reasons for that is that it has a system of, of family companies, nepotistic companies, um, and it hasn't really mastered the, 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 the trick of recruiting people on, on merit. And, and it has a very clientelistic um, political system. 
uh, uh, Greece has got exactly the same things, whereas more meritocratic com- countries like, like Germany and like um, the United States, particularly in the private sector, have been much more productive. Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, you've touched on China already. Yeah. Um, I mean, your description of the examination system, you talk about Brave New World in 1984, but it sounds as dystopian as as anything, anything those authors have written, you know, people go in their 80s still trying to pass these exams and, and so on. The Chinese system is extraordinary. I mean, it's, 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 it's partly that, you know, if you could pass the examinations, you would, your position in life was completely transformed. You became the equivalent of a nobleman. You became an advisor to the emperor. You became somebody that people bowed down to in the street. Uh, you became a really successful person. And as I say, you know, you're testing 10% of the population. You know, it's, it's, it's not impossible that you'll win this great prize, but most people failed. And so you've got people trying throughout their lives until, until they were 80 to, to, to pass the system. You've got large numbers of people devoting their entire lives to, to, to learning these really very narrow skills that you need to do, because these, these examinations tested your ability to recite um, Confucian texts and to draw beautiful calligraphy and things like that. Now, uh, and the system really ossified so that you could have a, a textbook that was written when Queen Elizabeth I was on the throne would have still be useful in 1900. So the whole, you know, it's just the same body of classical literature that was being tested year after year after year, decade and century after century. And so that really cut off China, the Chinese meritocracy from modernity. Meritocracy became an enemy of modernity. Um, and what is happening now in China, which is so, then the system collapsed. Um, in 1905, it's abolished for a long time under Mao Zedong. You got an extreme form of egalitarianism, which abolished all forms of examinations. What the Chinese state now is doing is reinventing this meritocratic Mandarin examination system. But this time, it's focused on engineering, science, technology, modern subjects. Um, and that, I think, is something that we should never lose sight of as we contemplate our own problems with meritocracy. Do you think that the, the way that Chinese have gone about it is particular to China? Or is there something in the idea that a, a successful meritocracy is inherently illiberal in the sense that very standardized, very conformist, everyone does exactly the same thing? That, to me, seems to jar with the idea of a kind of multifaceted democratic um, society. I, I just wonder what you think about that. I think it depends how you administer the, 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 the tests. And I think in a successful meritocratic system, you move away from tests that are just designed to test ability or knowledge in a very tick box way to more sophisticated tests, which reward creative thought. But it's certainly, it's certainly a potential problem with meritocracy. There are many, many, many potential problems with meritocracy. That is one of them. Um, but I would say that I think meritocracy can be a tool of different sorts of societies. It can be a tool of liberalism and democracy, and that's what it has mo- mostly been in the West, or it can be a tool of autocracy, and that is what it is in China now. And I think that if we ab- ab- abandon meritocracy or loosen our faith in meritocracy at the time when the Chinese are uh, intensifying their commitment to meritocracy, meritocracy will be a, 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 a tool of autocratic Future, but yes, there are many, many, many dystopian dangers uh, in, in, involved in meritocracy, and it's no—it's—it's it's no accident that many of the most terrifying versions of dystopia 
have been, you know, advanced meritocracies, of which Brave New World is, 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 is the classic example. Yeah. I mean, that brings us quite neatly to the next sort of little section um, of our discussion, which is really, we've talked a lot about, already, about kind of meritocracy being one thing or the other, but I just want to get into the actual idea of what, what merit is in your view, because a, a lot of, in the book, it seems synonymous with academic ability, um, high IQs, you have a lot of very interesting stuff about IQ testing, for example. I mean, it's part of the problem, part of the rebellion now is that is a definitional one. And people say, well, that's not what I value. That's what not what I think is is worthy of respect. Um, if you say, for example, that, you know, only the very highly educated should get particular types of jobs. Uh, yes. Um, this book, The Aristocracy of Talent here, <laughs> um, it's a history of many things, but one of the things it's a history of is the history of the notion of merit, the idea of merit. And the idea of merit changes very significantly over, over, over the years. So in the 17th and 18th century, for example, when the modern meritocracy was really gestating, um, it's referred to as merit, really, they don't refer to merit, they certainly don't refer to IQ, although they sometimes refer to intelligence, but they're mostly talking about virtues and talents. Mm -hmm. It's a plural thing, and it's just as much about your moral virtues as it is about your intellectual talents. And if you look at the cover of the, the book, um, the, there's a yeah. bunch of people, this is from the 19th century, there's, but there's a bunch of people climbing a ladder of opportunity. And on that ladder of opportunity are the words industry, temperance, prudence, integrity, economy, punctuality, courage, perseverance. So in the 19th century, again... Honesty down the side as well. Honesty, absolutely, absolutely, morality, honesty. In the 19th century, particularly with Samuel Smiles, you have a very moralistic view of what merit means. Merit means as much character, good character, as it means intellectual ability. But slowly, um, you have the notion of general intellectual ability becoming really the most important thing with merit. It starts off with... People like uh, Thomas Macaulay um, and people like Charles Trevelyan, who want to create examinations which essentially look for people's ability to, to think as measured by their ability to write and reason on paper. And this examination notion of, uh, uh, of, uh, of meritocracy and this notion that merit equals general ability and general ability means intellectual ability is something that becomes very, very dominant in the 20th century, um, and particularly with IQ testing. So um, McCall is talking about general ability. Then you have this notion that there are tests, IQ tests, which can measure general ability. Uh, and then you have the notion, the creation of the 11 plus, which is essentially designed to test this narrow view of merit as intellectual ability, which is a, you know the, becomes the basis of, 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 of British educational selection. So in the 19th century, schools are looking for a broad set of things, and ultimately they're looking for the perfect Christian gentleman who is um, intellectually able, but also a good sportsman, but also has a very good character. By the mid 20th century, you're, you're not quite fetishizing, but you're really focused on intellectual ability because um, that is regarded as what should be the key to education, because what is education? But, 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 but giving the right 
opportunities and training to, to people on the basis of their intellectual ability. Now, I feel very emotionally tugged in two directions by this, because on the one hand, I like the clarity of IQ testing, and I like the fact that you're looking for a, a single quality, and it's very difficult to game the system. If you start saying, we want good chaps, we want good rugby players, we want good flute players, you create a system that can easily be gamed by very privileged people. On the other hand, I think this system that uh, identifies merit purely with intellectual ability um, and is blind to questions of, of character and morality opens the door to you know terrible people, you know, as we've seen in, in, in you know in the in this you know with the rise of this sort of intellectually able sort of financial elite who don't care about anything other than making money and who don't care about and you know they're worse make money in in very crude and immoral ways. So what you need to do, I think, is sift people for their ability to learn, but also make sure that uh, the educational system devotes a significant amount of time and effort to developing character. And also that this new meritocratic elite is that it didn't do everything all on its own. That it's not, uh, you know, that if you're born clever, then you're, then you're lucky and you, you need to give something back. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what you said there that about the elite knowing they did it do it on their own. And one of the things that I think is concerning about the, 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 what you sketch out is that we're really producing a production line of very similar people with very similar outlooks. And there's a, a bit of kind of literature now about how that's very bad for decision making. Um, I wonder what you think about that, about the need to not just to value different skills, but to get people with different backgrounds and different perspectives on things. Absolutely. In different ways. Absolutely. As I say, I'm very divided about this. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm worried about a system that can be gamed and the use of very vague criteria of promotion, which middle class people manipulate to their own benefit. Um, on the other hand, I'm very worried about the narrowness of the, 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 the whole system that fetishizes um, IQ above everything else. And I think there are the, there are several problems, two, two, two of the most important you've pointed to. One is that you have. Uh, an elite of very like-minded people who all basically praise each other. Um, and you need to, um, and that anybody who doesn't get into that elite feels that they've failed. And I think it's very important to value different sorts of skills um, and not to have a system of selection by elimination, but to have a, a system of selection by differentiation. Yeah. People with different skills, seeing diff different ladders to test. On the cover of my book, there's one ladder. There should be many ladders. And if you look at the, the 1944, when the 11 plus was first introduced into Britain, you were supposed to have, you know, um, different schools, the modern schools, but also technical schools and also grammar schools. And that whole technical stream has been eliminated in Britain. It's disappeared. Polytechnics were supposed to be technical. They're gone. So this technical education, which is so successful in Germany, um, has disappeared. And that means that there's a whole set of varieties of skills that haven't been properly cultivated or rewarded. And it's interesting in that, you know, the more sophisticated society becomes, actually, the more different sorts of talents it should be able to appreciate and reward. And I think John Adams, who's one of the great thinkers about meritocracy, said that I study war and um, politics so that my children can study mathematics and philosophy, so their children can study porcelain and tapestry and um, art 
and handiwork and you know metallurgy and the rest of it. So really, as society becomes richer, you should have more talents uh, appreciated and rewarded rather than less. Also, your other point about people from different backgrounds meeting each other and uh, a variety of perspectives, that's absolutely true. I, I, I 100% agree with that. I just want to delve um, slightly to, sorry, just to slightly rewind a bit, back to what you were saying about IQ tests and you're talking about this idea of generalism. I mean, how much do you buy into this idea of G, which is this idea of general intelligence? Because, I mean, it strikes me that you, you meet very clever people who are brilliant at maths, for example, but can't string a sentence together. Or, or so, um, someone like Richard Feynman, for example, who is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, but couldn't spell properly. You know, does it... Sure, I think that I think that there is a wide variety of different types of intellectual ability. Um, I do, however, think that um, you know there's a mass of academic research on this, and it does tend to show that the you know people who who are who have very high IQs do tend to be quite good at a wide range of of, of mental operations. Um, and I think that that matters and finding such people matters. So the whole IQ tradition shouldn't be junked because it had certain, certain people abused it. Um, because I think that one of the keys to productivity increases at the moment in the modern high-tech economy is very able people. Um, and very able people can make huge contributions to productivity growth. So if you look at the tech sector, I've got many problems with the tech sector, but it has improve productivity to an extraordinary degree. And that whole thing has been driven, you know, as Bill Gates says, you know, tech is an IQ business and that has, that has produced, but we need to be able to harness those abilities, but also um, appreciate other and different, different kinds of abilities. And I, as I, uh, uh, I, I said it, but I'll say it again, that productivity improvements do ultimately mean that as society gets richer, it can reward a wider variety of different skills and abilities. Yeah, that brings up, well, that was going to be my next question was, I mean, how you, at the, in your conclusion, you strike a slightly gloomy tone about the state rim. I mean, are we doing that badly? I mean, we have a society where people of all sorts of different talents can, can get on in life. When you mentioned there's a guy who earns $200,000 a year, uh, eating hot dogs, which is sure. <laughs> um, I mean, are we are we in the West doing particularly badly? It strikes me that if there are failings with the meritocratic system, then on the one hand, there are also lots of opportunities that didn't exist for previous generations. The the, the, the things are getting better, I think, but they're not getting better fast enough. We have two big problems in the West. One is that productivity growth is very slow, and productivity growth has been slowing down. Uh, since the 1960s. We had a brief blip with productivity growth in the late 1990s, but again, it seems to have settled down. Uh, and once you have a low productivity growth society, you have basically people competing for each other for a, a pie that is getting bigger, but getting bigger too, too you know, slowly. So you tend to get uh, people um, angry and disagreeing with each other and, 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 and competing. Um, in a very negative way. Um, and, and, and secondly, what you have is that social mobility uh, is, is, has slowed down, that we, we have um, lower social mobility than we had in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and you have really what I would call a sort of calcification of society, that successful people tend to produce 
children who inherit their positions and unsuccessful people tend to be trapped at the bottom of society. And one reason why we've had um, these big populist rebellions, uh, most obviously with Trump, uh, certainly with also with Brexit, but also you know almost perpetual rebellion in France, is that people feel that society is stagnant and that they don't have an opportunity uh, to get ahead. And I think in order to have that opportunity to get ahead, you need higher productivity. We need to invigorate the economy, which I think meritocracy will do in the long term. But you also need to have um, a different and much more rigorous educational system. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to come on to education. I think there's, there's a couple of things I want to ask. One is, I'm not sure, from, maybe I need to re read the book again. I'm not sure exactly where you stand on this question of grammar schools, because you seem to be in sort of two minds on it. In on the one hand, they were, it was a very good engine for certain people to get out of modest circumstances into professional classes. But on the other, it left a lot of people behind it. With an exam that they did at 11, 11 years old. I mean, but where do you where do you stand on that now? Well, let me say that, that 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 I'm in two minds because there were you know there were two versions of grammar schools in the sense that they were very good for people who passed the 11 plus and very bad for people who didn't pass the 11 plus. That you separated society into sheep and goats, um, and you did that very early on on the basis of um, a system which was distorted in various ways. So it's geographically distorted. So you had many more places for grammar schools in Wales, let's say, than you than you did in the rapidly growing suburbs of, of London. So it was, you know, opportunity was, was a lottery to, to some extent. But also the biggest reason why it was distorted was that you didn't have technical schools. You didn't have this other third type of school, which offered opportunities for people who were vocationally uh, oriented who wanted to have apprenticeships and Germany, which has a, a system of selection, um, also had apprenticeships and also had technical schools, which were which were very popular uh, and very high status. So our, our, I think that the problem with educational selection in this country is it's, it's it's become fixated on the idea of going back to the grammar school system with all its disadvantages. What we need to do is to go forward to a much more variegated system. I think it's true that selective schools, academic schools, can have a very radical impact on people's lives, uh, on the lives of poorer people, because it takes them off into a new world and gives them an, uh, uh, an environment in which, uh, which intellectual success is valued and can flourish. Um, but we need lots and lots of different academically oriented schools, lots and lots of different technically oriented schools, not just one examination at one point, but schools that are all um, competing for, for students, looking for students, and are willing to use objective tests if they can get there, uh, get the right sort of students. So I would, I would say I'm in favour of selection. I'm in favour of using objective tests to select people early on for those schools. And I'd say that uh, because um, our system at the moment is one that is overwhelmingly biased towards the privileged. Uh, it's biased towards people who can buy educational opportunities for their children through private education, but also you can buy it through moving to the right areas. And what we don't have is, is, is a system which rigorously looks for ability right throughout society and gives it the opportunities that it deserves. Although the history of academies is a very encouraging one. You know, there are, there are schools, there's, school, there's now a school in the East End of London, heavily minority school in a very poor area of London, which gets more children into school than the, into Oxbridge than Eton does. So we are beginning to create these schools, but only after a terrible period in which 
homogenization of, of, of supply of schools was regarded as the best way to go. People are different. You know, they don't need homogenous products. They need differentiated products that are, that are linked to their aptitudes, abilities, and, uh, and, and the future generation destinations that they want to, want to attain. Yeah, I was going to say, I think a lot of what comes out from that is that it's not sorting people into good and bad. In the way no, just, absolutely not. Like, what are you good at? Yeah, That's absolutely. No, differentiate, as I say, selection by elimination was the great bane of this country. And what we have, need to have is selection by, by differentiation. But you do need a degree of selection because the variety of abilities and talents in the population is, 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 is so wide and probably getting wider as we have you know, a more sophisticated economy, which, which, which needs you know, very different sorts of, of talents to prosper. And we talked about sort of secondary education there, but one of the things you talk about towards the end of your book is that actually for a lot of children, the die is almost cast from a very young age where they're not getting preschool education, Absolutely. they're not hearing as many words at home. How do you resolve the, I don't know if it's a tension maybe, between the state getting really involved in someone's family life from a very young age and the fact that a lot of children are basically left to kind of sink because of absolutely. absolutely well it, it, i think you know the greatest book written on meritocracy i think is plato's republic because plato understands and explores the problems with creating a society um that's that, that looks everywhere and cultivates the men of gold and the, the men of silver and the rest of it and he said that the biggest things that stop creating a society that's based on a real notion of equality of opportunity is private property and the family and he says that in order to have a properly meritocratic society, you have to abolish the family and you have to abolish private property. And you have to have a system where children are raised communally and are educated communally. Then you see the ones who are really good and, 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 and turn them into philosopher kings. Well, that's obviously a dystopian and appalling idea, but it does point to some of these problems that you know human beings naturally want to look after their own children. They naturally want their own children to have the best opportunities and the best path ahead. And in order to create a quality of opportunity, we have to push against human nature a little bit. And we have to, I think, encourage um, a, a, level, a level playing field. And it's not enough just to have a level playing field whereby you have um, a good secondary school for everybody. A lot of the, um, the passing on of privilege happens at the very earliest age. Now, it's appalling the idea that we'd stop successful people from passing their success to their children because that's the natural process of child, child raising. But we do need to have a system of intervening to provide poorer children with enriched education. We used to have the notion of educational priority zones, which said certain areas where you have a lot of poverty, you will try and compensate for that with better education. But also in Rhode Island, they have a system, um, they, they've introduced a system whereby poorer people are encouraged to, to, to emphasize the importance of, of speaking to their children. And they've been offered devices, um, I mean, electronic devices, which tell them how many words they're talking to their children. So you have a lot of poor people are very aspirational. You know, they want their children to do as well as possible. They just don't see that there's a connection between like, talking to your child a lot and uh, being funded uh, in the end very successful educationally. So th th this is to try and drive 
drive home that, 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 that point, talk to the child as much as possible. So I thought that sort of intervention. Now, also, one, one more point. In, in Israel, they have a very elite part of the um, IDF, which um, is basically getting into this elite force is the equivalent of going to the best university in the world. And you, you actually had now Google and other companies just recruiting people straight from this uh, university and this uh, from this uh, unit. And this unit has started going around actually watching people um, in amusement arcades, seeing the kids who get fantastic scores. You know, they might they may be doing really badly at school. They may be dropouts of school, but they're fantastic at these machines and saying, well, wait a minute. These, these people are cognitively extremely gifted. We need to get hold of them to recruit them for our school. So we need to have a very broad um, attempt using a full range of technological skills to, to, to spread opportunity broadly around society. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I wonder, I mean, it would be remiss of me as the editor of a site called CapEx, which is all about capitalism, not to mention, you know, the role of the businessman, the entrepreneur in all this. I mean, I was quite struck... Um, in the book, you talk about how a lot of the most successful businessmen in America, particularly in the, at the start of the 20th century, were essentially uneducated, quite crude people, but who were very focused and very, you know, dynamic. Uh, I mean, what do you think the role of the entrepreneur is in, in this meritocratic system? Well, so, well, well, firstly, I think the entrepreneur is an absolutely key figure in, I, I, I agree with Schumpeter, that the entrepreneur is a key figure in creating prosperity because they seek out um, and uh, and um, universal, but they they seek out opportunities and turn those opportunities into new productive systems. So big leaps in productivity gain have have, have been the work of, of individually gifted people. And if you look at people like Rockefeller um, and Carnegie, they they weren't educated. They were incredibly talented um, uh, intellectually and and you know in, in terms of business acumen. Uh, but they weren't people who'd been to university, and they, you know, Rockefeller, Rockefeller founded universities. He didn't go to university, 
Um, and now you have a business class that's almost uniformly consists of people who went to university, quite often who've got MBAs and quite often who studied very, very demanding technical subjects. That's obviously true um, in the IT sector. You have a few university dropouts, but they dropped out just because they got to the, the end of what they could learn at universities. You know, you know they were cleverer than their teachers. Um, but I do think we've lost something in that, in valuing this one sort of cognitive ability. There are other business skills, other business acumen, sorts of acumen, which we need to look out for. And the old system whereby you could get to the top of a company from the shop floor, you could go in and rise from the shop floor, is something that we're losing at the moment, probably probably more in the, in the Anglo-Saxon world than you have in Germany, let's say. Um, and uh, you know this over this obsession with MBAs can have a can have a downside. There are companies that still promote people. For McDonald's is a classic example of a company. That I think you have to start off at the very very, very bottom. But again, um, I, I do think that high degrees of IQ do hold the key to big productivity gains. But we mustn't allow this to blind us to other sorts of of, of ability. And ultimately, a lot of what business is about is, is about organizational skills. Yeah. This brings me, I mean, you've kind of answered this question, but uh, I'm going to come on to the Q&A bit of our mm. discussion now. Um, my first question is from uh, Baroness Tina Stahl, who says, right. first she says she has bought the book, but not yet read it, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> that's all I care about. <laughs> and, uh, she says that there's a critical lack of diversity at the top of business politics or the public sector. Very few people who started on the shop floor. Um, and have risen through the ranks. Do you think that able people who are technically educated and not university grads can also be leaders? I suspect I know the answer. Well, I I think that they can be leaders, but I would say that that, that even an edu educational meritocracy, if it's properly implemented and conceived, does lead to a greater diversity of backgrounds. I think if we have the system which our, I, I outlined, whereby you're selecting people on the basis of intellectual promise and making a real attempt to get people on the basis of intellectual promise, then you would have more people from Northumberland, uh, let's say, or more people from Wales in the London-based elite that we have at the moment. You know, we're, we're sampling a very narrow range of the talents, intellectual talents are uh, that are available to us. And we, we do have um, an elite which has become self-perpetuating. Um, and in the, in the great days of the sort of faith in meritocracy. If I, I argue in my book that there was a sort of great meritocratic moment in Britain that came after 1945, um, with a Labour government committed to the idea of merit, committed to grammar schools, committed to, to promoting people um, from all sorts of backgrounds. And that was a government which was dominated by people from very, very different worlds. And Iron Bevan, Ernest Bevan, Bevin, um, Herbert Morrison. I mean, these were all extraordinary able people who have finally given their chance because society was, was opening up. So you, you move from the 1920s and 30s where you had a very narrow elite running Britain to a much broader based elite running Britain. And I'd like to see that again, but I, I agree with the Baroness that, that we must recognize that there are different types uh, of talent. What, what really annoys me is the idea that everybody should have prizes, that the, the, the talent doesn't matter, that everybody is fundamentally equal. I think we have to recognise that talent matters and that talent takes diverse forms. Well, that leads me neatly to my next question, which is from one of my colleagues here at the Centre for Policy Studies, um, Alex Morton, who is our kind of policy guru. Um, and he says, 
why is the current economic malaise and social dysfunction since the turn of the millennium, the millennium, sorry, gone hand in hand with the huge explosion numbers of higher education? Obviously, Tony Blair had his 50% target. Does that suggest that something is wrong with higher education? Well, I think that, 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 that this is where I would say that, that, that we have overexpanded higher education um, and we have large numbers of people who aren't particularly academically oriented doing university degrees because that's the thing that you do. And we've also had a vast expansion of subjects which don't add any intellectual value to the world. Let's call them you know, the critical theory subjects. These are not subjects which train you in anything that, that, that matters and they probably spread an attitude to the world which is rather negative. Um, however, you do, uh, on the other hand, have um, some of the best science in the world being done in Britain. You have some of the best universities in the world, some of the best technical universities in the world. Um, I would change the nature of universities a bit. And I think Warwick is an interesting example of a university that's done incredibly well in cultivating a practical side in, you know, in the study of batteries and the study of automotive technology and the rest of it. So we should have a more, more sort of uh, Warwick's of that sort. Uh, and the other thing is, I think we need non-university institutions, technical colleges, um, apprenticeships, um, vocational colleges in which people can work academically some of the week and, and, and work for companies the rest of the week. So we took one particular model of the university, which is the elite, theoretical, non-practical, and we tried to take it from dealing with 2% of the population to dealing with 50% of the population. And that, that, was, that was a mistake of imagination and um, something that this government, I think, will address. It certainly needs to address. It's funny you mentioned Warwick, because my next question comes from, a, um, I think, an academic at Warwick Law School. Um, and he asks whether you think, uh, he says one of the points might be that in the 18th century, so this is more of a, on the history of meritocracy, yeah. Western European parliamentary states, ministers began to take advice from non-aristocratic advisors. Yeah. Um, he cites Pitt the Younger and Adam Smith. Yeah. It's a good example. He says, I wonder if you'd be willing to speak in more detail as to why that might happen. Well, I mean, it doesn't just happen in the 18th century. I mean, it happens much earlier than that. So if you, we go back to the Tudor period, you have both Thomas Cromwell and Cardinal Wolsey, who have both come from you know, the lower classes and are both administrative geniuses and who helped to create the nexus of the, I mean, the nucleus of, of the modern state. So uh, as I tried to say, say earlier, there was a system from the early Middle Ages onwards, what, which I, I dub in my book, Sponsored Mobility. I should say, John does mention that in his question. I just thought oh. it, yeah. Okay, yes. you have a system of Sponsored society, Mobility, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whereby no, the elites so. see that, wait a minute, I've got to run the country. I've got to run the, um, my estates. I need able people to do that. So um, I'll create these able people. I will look for them. I'll see them amongst my own workers. So they, 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 there's a process of selecting these people. And in the church, you have the same thing going on. And you have a system of creating schools which are designed to create these sort of people. Um, Winchester was uh, an obvious example of this. It was designed to prov you know, provide clever boys to run the, the church and, the, uh, and the, the state, particularly the legal aspect of the state. And you do have this system of sponsored mobility. Um, and what, um, but what these people were, were a minority, they're essentially well, well, um, well, well treated servants. 
they're a minority whose role is to make um, the life of the aristocrats and the life of the kings more comfortable. And what's uh, the revolution with meritocracy is that you start saying that we don't just need to pick up a few people to, to, do, to, to do this administrative tidying, but we actually need to have everybody allocated on the basis of their individual abilities, individual merits. So we're not just treating, they're not just servants, you know, everybody apart from you know, the king or say, uh, does, does, does these examinations. We don't yet have examinations for kingship, although we, we, we might one day have that. Um, another question from an anonymous, um, which I think is a very good one, actually. We talked a lot about getting on when at the start of life, but one of the big barriers, what about, what do you think about kind of structural barriers in mid-career, particularly for women who choose to have children? And then kind of drop out of the workforce. And how do you see? Because that is kind of anti-meritocratic. You could have extremely able women who are basically faced with the choice of either having a family or having a career, and, and it's very hard to then resume where you left off. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a, that is a genuinely serious problem, um, and it's an even it's also a perverse problem to have in the sense that we're living longer, um, and so the amount of time that you have to take off as a proportion of your career for 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 for, for childcare and child rearing. Um, is, is, is is smaller than it used to be. But I th also think we need to be w cautious about saying that you'll only have a meritocracy if you have exact representation within elite positions of different genders. Because some people might have chosen to, 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 to have, uh, to, to, to raise their children rather than having a career. Having a career isn't the only measure of success or indeed satisfaction. There are many other measures of success and satisfaction. Um, so people, whether they're men or women, who say, I don't, this is not for me. I don't want to do this. I'd rather be raising my children. Uh, that's perfect. We should fetishize, you know, just, 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 just careers, you know. The, and I, I would, again, you know, qualify merit. I think merit is an important thing. Uh, and it's a, a condition of uh, uh, an economically productive society and also to some extent a socially just society that we have uh, you know, a, a reasonable approximation of meritocracy. But there are many, many other values that, 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 that really matter in, in society. We don't want to fetishize this to the extent that we become you know, Aldous Huxley's brave new world. Yes. Um, and I think it touched on, the, you talked about in the books as well, that, you know, a lot of these there are big problems, even in somewhere like Singapore that's done phenomenally well economically. There are some big kind of social and cultural problems with how ferociously competitive it is. Yeah, R.H. Tawney once said um, that we're not all elbows. And there is a notion that these societies are all elbows. Everybody's elbowing everybody out of the way. And I think that if you turn the heat up on, on selection too far, that is a problem. Because the ideal of selection ultimately is not that I should beat you, but we should all find our appropriate place in the system. And we should look down on people who don't thrive in an academically competitive environment because there are many other different forms of forms of success. Again, selection by differentiation rather than selection by elimination. Sure. Um, a related question, um, and one that comes back to our previous discussion about um, IQ and testing is, and, and another anonymous, I'm afraid I don't have the name, uh, asks, surely any society based on intellectual merit will always have an element of hereditary privilege given that bright parents will likely have bright children. I mean, that's a slightly contentious thing, isn't it? Because some of the research on this suggests 
it's true to a degree, but it only accounts for a certain amount of a child's um, abilities. I would say the 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 the, the, the opposite is true. First, but first of all, I'd say that 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 genes only account for a certain amount of uh, your ability. But secondly, there's this uh, genetic phenomenon called regression to the mean, whereas it tends to, so it tends to be the case that intellectually successful parents will have slightly less intellectually successful children, um, just as tall parents have, on average, slightly taller, slightly shorter children than themselves, or or if you had tall people getting taller children, you'd have people getting taller and taller and taller and taller. And, you know, the, 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 you, you basically have a process of regression to the mean if you have very tall parents. Um, and I think that um, the interesting thing about the genetics of this is if we had a system whereby social privileges could be passed on in an unmediated form to children, it would always be the case that highly educated people would be able to pass on highly educated would be able to create highly educated children. But in fact, genetics is much more variable than that. You have lots of highly able people who have less able children, or even children who aren't academically disposed at all. Genetics is the sort of is 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 the sort of um, unpredictable thing in all of this. There's a high level of unpredictability. So I would say that um, genetics, uh, and this is, I mean, Plato says it, although he wasn't basing it on science, he was basing it on personal observation. That he says what's extraordinary is that poor people have children with extraordinary intellectual abilities and rich people who've had all the privileges in life have children without those abilities or children who become drunkards or children who just don't, just be, be, don't put in any work. So I think the more we base things on natural mobility, the more we will have a perpetual system of social mobility. Okay. Um... Uh, I have another question from my colleague, Alex, which is slightly similar to my one about the entrepreneurs and their role. We talked about how they're important, but he asked, is capitalism, like a market economy, not a better meritocracy than academic credentialism? Sure. Wait a minute. First of all, I, I should say I'm not purely arguing for academic credentialism. I would, I'm arguing for a differentiated system of which academic credentials and abilities is, 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 is one important thing that we need to measure for. But um, I mean, this is the point of Hayek. Hayek said that there is no, you know, Hayek was very much against the idea of meritocracy because he said it's really the market that values skills and abilities, and the market, the, 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 effectively, and the market will always value different skills and different abilities in different ways according to how how, how demand manifests itself in society. So there's no hierarchy of, of, of merit. There's just a perpetual play of market forces. I would say there are two problems with Hayek's position. Um, one is that we're talking about allocating opportunities here. Um, and what we're trying to do is match abilities with opportunities, particularly for young children. And we don't know the, how those children are going to do in the markets. And I don't think just selling education opportunities to children, regardless of their abilities, is the right way to go here. So we need to have, we need, we're, we're dealing with the allocation of a particular and strange sort of resource, which is educational opportunity to young people. But secondly, um, I think that the market um, tends to um, perpetuate privilege and tends to um, make sure that people who already have a lot of money have a lot of opportunity and, and have more money. And that ultimately that becomes a problem for a capitalist system if you have, if you have too much money and too much privilege um, 
accumulated by a small number of people. And what meritocracy does is to try and actually counterbalance um, the inequality of the market with a different sort of um, inequality and a different sort of set of set of opportunities. So the meritocracy, in my mind, is very much a way in which society redistributes opportunities in order to make sure that able people get those opportunities regardless of uh, of their parents' parents' abilities. So, um, and that's you know in many ways what the 1945 Labour government was was trying to do. So I'm I'm not a Hayekian in this in this area anyway. Uh, another question, very, I'm just kind of linked to what you were just saying, is um, basically how much the country spend on, compared to say how much we spend on the health, on implementing a plan for, for the kind of system that you describe. Is this such a big priority that it's worth really piling into? Or do you think oh, this is more of a structural issue? I think it's an absolutely, absolutely huge priority. And I think if you look um, at the comparative success of different nation states, those that are more meritocratic tend to tend to be um, more prosperous than those that are less uh, meritocratic. So I think if we want to if we want to be a, remain a prosperous country, we need to take it all very seriously. Um, but I I think the amount that we spend is not my biggest concern um, because I think that the, the the relationship between spending on education and educational outcomes is very loose. Um, I think much more important is the nature of your educational ethos and organization. And I think we made a huge mistake in the public school sector uh, to go for a sort of equality and egalitarianism as our ethos and the sort of outcome we need. So I'd rather change the spirit of education and make the spirit of education more meritocratic. Uh, and I don't think that, that needs more money. Indeed, in one way, I think that um, we might we might sort of be spending a little bit less money because I think what one of the, the the unjustifiable things that we have in the this country at the moment is that public schools, private schools, um, are charitable organisations. They're treated very generously under our tax code, and they were given that charitable status uh, because they were there to educate the children. Or they were they're originally created to educate poor children. Uh, Winchester certainly, the King's Scholars of Eton certainly, right across the board in uh, in public schools, and they've now become schools that um, essentially educate the children of financiers, who are the only people who can afford the fees, or foreign uh, children. And I don't think that's justified in terms of our of our tax system. So I think they should be obliged to give at least fifty percent of their places to uh, poor children who can't afford those places, and they should be reintegrated into the state system as sort of a way of providing opportunities for sort of super scholarship winners. Hmm. I just wonder, um, as a final question, afraid we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the book that Singapore is probably the most kind of purely meritocratic country in the world, but which country do you think is closest to the model that you're advocating? Would you say it's sort of, Germany 20 years ago, or is there a country you think, right, they're doing it really well? I would say that Germany has an enormous amount to teach us because its capacity to value different sorts of, of skills, um, different sorts of mental abilities is very admirable. And the vision that I've sketched out might, you know, might, might, might be accused of being over preoccupied by intellectual success. And I think Germany's ability to value different sorts of success is very admirable. And if you look at the big revolts against meritocracy that are going on now, they're going on in the Anglo-Saxon world, 
or they're going on in uh, France, uh, which has a very steep meritocratic system, um, and not so much in, in, in Germany. So I think we have a lot to learn from Germany. And I think the next one of the great next phases of educational reform we're going to see in this country is trying to correct this overemphasis that we've had on on universities and overexpansion of universities with a, a big push to have better technical training and education in this country. Okay, well, I think that's a nice positive uh, leveling up themed uh, note for us to end on. Um, thank you very much, Adrian, for joining us. And thank you all in the audience for joining us as well. I'm sorry if I didn't get around to your question. We had an awful lot of questions, clearly a very hot topic. And um, yeah, it only remains for me to say that uh, do buy the book, The Aristocracy of Talent. It's very interesting. There's lots of great little anecdotes about inbred European monarchs and uh, <laughs> crazy IQ testers and phrenology. And it's really, really interesting and, uh, you know, very stimulating. So do give it a read. Um, so thanks very much, Agent. And uh, thank you very much. For very kind of you. Bye bye. Bye now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.